On this week's podcast, I'm rejoined by Jason Verano of the Nomura Securities event team. We do a deep dive into the situation between Dell and VMware and Carl Icahn. What is the market probability of a Fox A deal block? How could Rockwell Collins impact the entire ARB community? And does Dan Loeb have any chance of winning the Campbell Soup board? I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of October 21st, 2018. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the discussion of deal speculation, activism, and the sources that both cover and surround them. I have been getting inundated with emails and tweets regarding the situation at DVMT, which of course is the tracking stock Dell has been using for VMware. And after news of Carl Icahn's increased involvement this week, it was time to do a deep dive on it. And I believe Jason Verano of the Nomura Securities event team has done some of the most thorough analysis on it. We discussed Dell, Fox A, Campbell Soup, and much more, so I'll get right to the interview, which taped on Sunday, October 21st. The last time we spoke, Jason, was in mid-July, and at that time, uh, we were sort of discussing the aftermath of NXPI and Qualcomm. We touched a little bit on Altaba Baba, Acorn, Fresenius, and CBS Viacom. So I just wanted to quickly sort of touch base on those before we move on to some new business. So starting with Qualcomm, they initiate this gigantic buyback, right? It's like, a, you know, $15, $20 billion. They try to do a $10 billion tender of which they get half done Yeah. at 67 and a half. And now they have like $16 billion left, which needs to be bought, I think, by May to achieve these EPS goals that they want for 2019. And the stock suddenly has come in 10 points and it's below where, you know, no one wanted to tender. So first of all, are people, are you still getting phone calls on Qualcomm? Do people care about this name or have people moved on? Well, I think, I mean, always the bull case in Qualcomm was that they just had this monster buyback. And I think people thought that the reason they wanted to do the buyback so aggressively was because they foresaw this licensing agreement with Apple resolving in a positive manner. Right. They even talked about it when they were fending off Avago and they put it in some of their numbers. So the bull case was always, and we talked about this, if a company's buying back 30% of their stock as fast as they can, then you want to be there before they're there. So now you have the Dutch out of the way. They already announced the ASR. So you have sort of the announcement catalyst, let's say, out of the way. Mm-hmm. And you're running into a really tough semiconductor tape. So you have, I think you have a lot of investors that kind of chase this thing that don't want to stick around for whatever's going to happen with Apple and think that aside from that, the positive headlines are out of the way and they're looking at potentially a cliff in semiconductor cycle. And they just, they've made their money and they kind of want to move on. Right. I think that people kind of thought that, oh, if I'm buying Qualcomm, I'm trading with a net underneath me that I can't really lose. Um, but then the stock comes in 10 points and now it's below that tender. So I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and the ASR has some 
specifics to it where it should catch a bid. Um, these banks make more money the lower Qualcomm goes, so they right. should get more aggressive to purchase a stock. So it should be supportive, but I, I think you probably need the semiconductor tape to at least normalize a little bit. Right. Okay, now Acorn, a name that um, you know you had liked from the long side, it didn't work out. Um, is this over? <laughs> Well, last time I was here, I was pretty bullish. I think yeah. I threw a 70% number and right. elicited a wow out of you. Um, <laughs> so obviously I have no, no credibility left here. Um, the, the tough one on, on this name is I think in order to own it, you have to be somewhat comfortable with what the fundamental value is. And we can come up using various peer multiples. We come up with the number somewhere between $3 and $8. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you told me it was lower than that, I wouldn't think you were absolutely crazy. So you have to look at it almost like a free option. They lost on all three counts. It's going to be extremely difficult for them to overturn this thing. Uh, we think parts of the decision for sure get overturned. Uh, we think that the way that Laster wrote his decision actually changes contract law uh, for M&A, um, specifically when it comes down to mer- material adverse effect. Right. There was uh, a, an article in today's FT that was all about that. And one of the interesting parts of the article was, the, the first line of the article was, uh, if only if Fresenius had listened to James Barrowsmith. And it discussed this dynamic between James, uh, who at that point was the top business development executive at Fresenius, and he was a skeptic of the Acorn deal uh, before its deeper financial problems were known. And then the CEO, who was John Ducker, whose nickname, and this is according to the FT, was Freight Train, John Freight Train Ducker. And he earned this nickname for consistently over-delivering uh, on his profit targets. But, you know, the, the crux of the trial was sort of who knew what when, right? That was, that was the yeah. main thing that was up for dispute. And the article talks about how Barrowsmith was a huge skeptic of the deal before it happened. And uh, in one example, which, which I thought was great, was it cites how during uh, the deal, Acorn executives had given the negotiations with Fresenius a codename Project Oak. And Bowersmith had named the very same negotiations something called Project Sephora, which is short for a fungus known as Sephiratosis phagocerum, which is apparently a fungus that's known to kill oak trees. And the article goes on to say that... Uh, he thought Acorn's schedule for launching new drugs was, quote, the definition of insanity. He also described the performance of their launches as, quote, almost comical. So it was a, it's an interesting article. You should check it out anyway. And, and a lot of people you know, are, are named and, and things are said. Um, so they're going to appeal. You just give it a low probability. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to appeal. Uh, they said that they're going to appeal. I think there's no, there's no reason not to. You don't have to go to a new trial. I think the uh, incremental legal costs are insignificant in proportion to what your potential upside is if you're able to win. And look, Laster was pretty definitive in his decision, but he also, there's a couple narratives you can believe in this one. And we believed a different one than he believed in, but you know, a different judge might come in and, uh, believe the one that we kind of believe from the beginning. And in Laster is, I think he's the most overturned judge on appeal in the entire circuit. So, um, it's not impossible. We still talk to investors that like it. We like owning optionality. 
just because you minimize your downside. Yes. What sort? What what month would you even go out to on something like this? Yeah, so we think March probably catches, um, but I think June for sure would catch. Um, given the size of the deal, Acorn will ask for a, a expedited appeal process. Um, so the council that we've talked to suggests that something like in March timeframe makes sense. In March, I think it was March 12 or 12 and a half calls have been trading. They're slightly over a dollar. Mm. Um, they're worth $22 if the deal goes through. So you're not paying for a lot in terms of implied probability. Right. Right. But of course, if they won, then would then Fresenius appeal? And I mean, how many rounds? If they go? win, the deal closes. Oh, yeah. got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Quickly, CBS Viacom. Uh, I think it was in September, early September. There was, suddenly CBS was went up like ten percent in two days. People suddenly thought Les Moonves has gone, and maybe this is in play. People playing it from that side, from the deal side. Yeah, yeah, not so much. I think on the. It's funny because media was like a crown jewel media asset came available never, and you kind of had to consolidate given what's going on in in the whole. OTT space, Netflix and everything, you need to own all these assets. But now it's kind of like, well, everyone's made their play. Verizon doesn't want content. And I don't think we'll see the deal guys stepping back into this one until we get some credible evidence that Facebook or Google or Apple or Amazon or somebody, one of those players comes in. And then if they do, I mean, this thing's... I mean, that would be the equivalent of when Amazon bought Whole Foods. It would just be like a game-changing event if Facebook bought CBS or something like that. I mean, that, yeah. that would be pretty wild. Um, all right, new business. So the number one name that everyone wants to talk to me about that I'm getting emails and tweets is Dell VMware. Yeah. Is that, is that what people are calling you on? Yeah. So we've been involved in this deal for a long time, back before the EMC deal closed, when we had people playing through the OTC markets, what the VMware versus tracker spread was going to be coming out. Um, it's becoming much more popular. We've had a lot more people ping us on it over the last few weeks. And obviously we're coming up to likely some sort of resolution one way or the other. Um, I think they set the shareholder vote date for early December. So, um, we, we have, you know, a little less than two months. So we're going to have, um, some way that this thing's going to play out. This is, it's a really difficult situation because, um, it's such a sentiment driven trade in not just how it's going to trade going into the vote, but even how it would trade coming out of the vote. And so here's, here's kind of, I'm, I'll give two sort of extreme examples. And this is kind of the Carl Icahn uh, argument here. Um, Carl Icahn says it's one of the biggest value transfers he's ever seen in his career. And he believes that he can sort of pressure Dell into giving some of that value back to the shareholders. So Dell, my the first assumption that we make is that Dell wants to roll up VMware. VMware is a better asset than the legacy EMC Dell assets that he owns. Uh, it's more future-proof, it's not levered, and it throws off a ton of cash. Uh, the Dell businesses are, have been doing well, but if we enter into a economic recession, then a legacy tech company that's four times levered is probably not where you're going to want to be as an investor. So the longer that Dell waits, the more that valuation gap um, it gets larger between what VMware is worth and what the legacy Dell stuff is worth. So it's in Dell's best interest to get rid of this tracker and roll this whole thing up right now. And he's going after the tracker because the tracker is much cheaper than 
getting that economic stake through the VMware public float. Right. So Dell is incentivized to get this done quickly. So if you were, let's say, let's say the float on this thing is a tenth of what it is right now, or let's say Carl Icahn or Elliot or one of these guys did have $20 billion and Dell actually did go through on his threat and IPO'd this Dell Nuco. Well, Carl Icahn or whoever, whoever else could bid up the price of DM, DVMT all the way up to the price of VMware. And then Dell would never be able to do that forced conversion because he'd have to basically buy in the tracker for full value. And then he'd be issuing shares of this Dell IPO at presumably the discount that they're going to trade for. So his hands are tied. He could never do anything. Okay. But if the opposite is true and Dell IPOs and then everyone pukes their DVMT shares and they go down to a dollar, then Dell cleans up and he just retires tracker shares at a super, super cheap valuation. And he doesn't care if he gives up some of his Dell IPO shares at a somewhat cheap valuation. He still wins in the whole transaction. So the amount of leverage that Dell has comes down to how how shareholders are going to trade this thing coming out. So that's why Carl Icahn is trying to really, he's taking up his stake. He took a stake up to almost $2 billion, which is a monster stake for him. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to go in and get other shareholders or get other financing sources to sort of ensure that if Dell does go this IPO route, that he's never going to be able to come up with a better deal than he's kind of than he has on the table right now. So so Icon's trying to take that that leverage that Dell has and put it back in the DVMT shareholders. So as a not as an investor who doesn't have the ability to put together five or ten billion dollars worth of capital in this thing, um, what you're kind of betting on is the Dells and the Elliots and the Black Rocks to sort of be able to control this thing and, you know, stare Dell in the face and sort of attempt to extract some extra value. Okay. Go on. No, and in, in, in a bump here, some extra value it would make sense for everybody. I mean, this thing's trading much cheaper, I'm sure, than Dell ever thought it was going to trade. And for him to be able to retire the DVMT tracker at a 25% discount to VMware would seem like an entirely reasonable thing for him to do. And I think that despite Icon saying he's going to hold out for for all of it, basically, I would think that the vast majority of shareholders would be happy with a 10 or 20% bump to the current valuation. Right. So the current valuation, he Dell is saying is 109, mm-hmm. roughly, but people are saying that's more like 95 because the value of new Dell is up for grabs. Yeah. So the way I see it is it's, I, I can come up with numbers that support Dell's math pretty easily. The problem is that Dell's going to be this conglomerate made up of all these different businesses. Some of them he owns completely. Some of them he owns partially, but has a control in that have public floats out there. So what kind of discount is the market going to put on this gigantic sum of the parts when the, the float of the new Dell, we're not even going to have a controlling shareholder vote. So you're going to have a non-controlled float out there. You're going to have this sum of the parts that the market's going to discount massively. So trying to handicap 
how much the market's going to discount all these different pieces that he owns is really difficult. And what it's telling you right now is that people aren't going to trade this thing well coming out. Right. So that's my, my next question, I guess, is if I own this, how do, how, what's my worst case scenario? Like, what's the scenario that I get carried out on or I lose 20% on? Like, does that even exist? It can't just be all upside, which is what some people seem to think is the case. Yeah. If he goes this IPO path and scares everybody, and now this thing doesn't track VMware anymore because everyone's just afraid he's going to do this conversion, then you could get into this downward spiral where the worst DVMT trades the more incentive he has to retire DVMT and convert people over into the IPO. So then it trades even worse and investors get scared. And that's why it's a tough trade because the path where he's trying to exert leverage requires shareholders to stay strong. And because it's a almost a $20 billion float, it's kind of hard for, for ARB to trust the ARB and event community to do that. Right. So hypothetically, let's say he files for the IPO in a filing. DVMT, I think, went out around 95. Where do you think the first trade would be on Monday morning if that happened? I think it would be lower. So that would be something that I would be watching pretty intently. So if if shareholders really start panicking, then that's going to inform me of how shareholders are going to behave throughout this entire process. But you could easily see a situation where he IPOs this thing, stocks down a couple hundred bips, and then Elliott increases their stake or Icon was able to find some other uh, partners in this thing or financing sources to allow him to get bigger, uh, and it could actually trade well. The, the problem with this one is that the goalposts are just unknowable. Right. It, it kind of comes back to what I said at the beginning. It's just it's a one giant sentiment trade, even if Dell bumps. Let's pretend that Dell bumps by 10%, but adds more Dell equity. Well, if everyone thinks that Dell equity is going to trade at some monster discount, maybe the stock runs 5% and then everyone just says, okay, I got it. I'm out. I don't want to stick around for the back end. Right. And then, and then maybe you don't even, you don't even have that much upside. Does everyone who has this on is, let me rephrase. Does everyone, is everyone who has this on short VMware as well? Or do you, do you have people that are just straight long DVMT? I think most people that have this on have some hedge. And whether DVMT is a tracker for VMware or it's a share of new Dell, it should, in theory, have a lot of VMware exposure to it. Because new Dell, the vast majority of the value in new Dell is made up of the shares of VMware that they right. have. So I think you're supposed to have some, at least some VMware shares against it. And even though the, the VMware short interest is low, um, I do think that at least most people we talk to have at least some VMware against it. And then maybe they have some HPE, HPQ, or some Cisco, or some other broader tech To exposure. hedge against New Dell. To hedge against New Dell, yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. You know, it got a lot of attention this week because Icon's in it now. Yeah. Um, but if you look back, I mean, I, I say this with the caveat being Carl Icahn's the greatest activist investor that we've ever seen, right? And he's, and he's like the Warren Buffett of that space. But if you look at his last campaigns, they haven't been so successful. Well, he's preaching to the ARB community and he just tried to blow them all up in the ESRX. Or in, 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 in the ESRX. Uh, ESRX, yeah, Signa deal. 
I mean, this is crazy to say, but does does Carl Icahn does it not hold the weight that it used to? You know, if, if this was a if this was a sports talk podcast, and I said, and if, if and if I said to you, um, you know, has LeBron James lost a step? We could talk about it for fifteen minutes. But if anyone says has Carl Icahn lost a step, that never really gets discussed. But if you look at his last campaign, Sandridge, Xerox, Newell Rubbermaid, he's missing a lot, as you said, ESRX. So does it not hold the same weight? The market's definitely telling you it doesn't hold the same weight. The stock did not react the way that it should have reacted. If Elliott had taken a $2 billion, taken their stake up to $2 billion, the stock would have acted very differently, I think. Um, so I think at least the ARB community and the people that I talked to on the Express Scripts deal think, and he's had AFSI was another example where he's just, he came in super opportunistically. And I think people are thinking he's just being opportunistic here and he's, He's not really in for the long fight. Um, but, I mean, he did put, take a pretty massive stake. $2 billion is not nothing. What about the fact that this isn't the first time he's tangled with Dell, and the first time he did it to, marginal victory, right? He got a $0.15 cent bump on taking Dell private. So is there anything that can be extrapolated from that interaction? Yeah, he wants to. He wants to fight him. I mean, look at him I and mean, uh, look at him and Ackman on the Herbalife. I mean, he never backed down. So maybe this is maybe this is what you want. You want him to go at Michael Dell round two because you want him to be engaged and not be in it for five percent of asymmetric return or something. But he's talking a very big game in Dell VMware. He talked a very big game in Dell, and in the end, he settled for. 10 cents or 15 cents or whatever it was so does that diminish the the ask a little bit you know yeah but again i think that every investor that's in this name especially the ones that have been in this for a while five percent bump ten percent bump i think we're all good with it. it yeah right okay um let's talk a little bit about campbell's soup so november 29th shareholder vote what do you think the odds are that third point can win? Right now, we have the Durant's family. Their 41% is off the table. Lord, sorry, Loeb and George Strawbridge control about 9.5%. He would need roughly 84% of the remaining votes to overthrow this board. If you're going to put a percentage on it, what chances would you give it? I think it's pretty low. I think the, these families are just really hard to unseat. I think that a deal makes sense. We've thought that a Campbell's deal was going to happen for a long time. We thought Kraft Heinz is just the perfect acquirer for them. I think Kraft Heinz would be interested if they could overthrow this board. Um, they don't want to reach and they don't want to go hostile. And they've been much more disciplined since the Kraft deal than I think anyone thought that they would be. Um, but it's just hard to look at what they've done with their food assets and not think that they could get more out of soup than Campbell's has. Right. But this is just a tough situation. What happens if they lose the vote and Loeb comes out of his shares? Well, let's talk about what if they lose the vote, the stock is 38 right now. Does it go 30? Where does it go? I think it depends what they do with Loeb's stake and what they're able to present. They don't have a CEO right now. Right. They kind of perpetually have underperformed from the margin side. So... If they're able to put together some credible path forward, then 
maybe the market behaves okay, but you have JP Morgan's a big bear here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some it's downsides. It's really still. binary now. Yeah. I mean, this is this 38 is is it? It's almost is it eight up, eight down, or I don't even know if it's eight up. I mean, if they if they somehow won the vote, where would it go? I mean, City put out a piece and they thought that Craft um, could pay upper forties, and Loeb I think put out in his presentation that it's worth. Did he say it's worth sixty? I'd have to look back, but it's super aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's the that's the activist playbook, right? Right. Right. But you know, he doesn't walk away easily. The only time I can remember him walking away is from the Sony transaction. Or yeah, he yeah. was pushing Sony to spin off the, the movie division, and he walked away. But that's the only time I can remember. But if, they, if he can't get those board seats, you know, what, what's the play? He, there's nothing really much left for him to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe he can get one or two board seats, and he can get some operating or management expertise in there. Or something. If you think the asset's cheap enough and you try to get the instant value in the sale, if not, you try to realize it over time. He might have also, I mean, his average in this has got to be around, you know, low 30s. I think it's under 35. So he may have bought this thinking, I've got five down and then, you know, 15 plus up if I can get this done. So it's worth the risk. Yeah. Uh, so maybe he will just dump. Um, but super binary. Um, Athena Health. So we were kind of just scrolling through all the best activists right now. So Athena Health, people who followed in Elliot here um, are regretting it. And well, first of all, what do you think about when, you know, Elliot put out this letter, they put out a 160 bid. Now it seems they're totally backtracking off that. Can they ever put out a letter like that again? Well, the the business has deteriorated a little bit. So... I guess you do have an excuse there, but it doesn't it doesn't read well, right? That you put this bid out and it sort of wasn't really a bid. That's sort of how it reads. Plus they picked out the CEO. The they have no CEO. Yeah. That's one of the reasons the business is deteriorating, right? <laughs> yeah. It's funny, we haven't heard much from Jonathan Bush. You know, like in Papa John's, you have this, he wants to maybe take the company private. When Qualcomm was going through that, or uh, Paul Jacobs rumblings. He wanted to take the company private. And here's uh, Jonathan Bush who said his company was worth $1,000 a share and he's nowhere to be found. Why is that? You know, why doesn't he rally a group? If this process is so bad and no one wants the asset, where, where is he? Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I, well, just going back to the CEO, I don't think that CEO was very well liked among shareholders anyways. Right. So... Um, I think the general view is that they probably did him a favor there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean this this is also a tough one to handicap because what's the what what is the downside on this thing? If they are not able to come up with a deal price with no CEO trying to sell the asset, they have everyone on the street look at it two different times, and they can't come up with a clearing price, then it's going to be ugly. Under a hundred, I think. Yeah. I mean, why would you want to own this? If everyone passed at 135, let's say, yeah. why would I want to buy the common note 100? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, this is getting pretty crazy. Uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about Rockwell Collins. I would like to hear about it. I'm not up to speed as much on this as you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is kind of, I'd say, the first um, U.S.-China transaction that we've had since Qualcomm NXPI. Okay. Uh, we had this Praxair Lindy, but that was with a German company, and you can make some arguments that, that China wanted to 
um, keep good relations with Europe. This is a U.S. company. U.S. company has all the other approvals, only needs uh, SAMR, formerly Mavcom. Right. Uh, and it's trading at a 70% implied probability. So the ARB community thinks it's more likely to go through, but it's not a home run. Uh, you had the UTX CEOs said multiple times he doesn't think China is going to be an issue. Um, so this one's important not only because it's actually a, a pretty sizable deal for the ARB community, uh, but also because people think that probably the biggest risk on the Fox Disney deal, which is trading at, we think, a, a, a extremely low implied probability, is the China approval. So the other angle of this that I think is interesting is by the end of Qualcomm NXPI, every investor on the street knew what was happening in that deal. And everyone was tying that deal into the broader trade war dynamic. Right. And when that deal ended up getting not approved in time, China came out and said, well, it was complicated. The semiconductor industry is complicated. We have a huge semiconductor industry in China, and we were trying to work through everything, and we just needed a little bit more time. Which was ridiculous. Which they is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. But the market bought it. Right. And, and didn't, it didn't sort of bleed over into the broader market when it actually failed. Um, whereas this deal, I don't think anyone beyond the ARP community is paying attention to. And this deal doesn't, there would be nothing to blame on this deal. All the, all the stories that we've gotten is that the aerospace industry in China is fine with this deal. Uh, there was three different, um, sources last week that were saying that the staffers are okay with this deal, that they've already come up with a remedy and divestiture package. So if this deal gets blocked, it's kind of like fool me once. Mm-hmm. But the second time that China does it, people are going to get the joke and that maybe this is what they're talking about when they're saying that they're going to expand trade retaliation beyond just trade. What's frustrating is that they never blocked NXPI. They just let it die in the vine. Yeah. And so that could happen again with this. I mean, you could just keep waiting. Yeah. So the I mean, the the. Conspiracy theory on the NXPI deal is that by the end, Qualcomm didn't want the asset Mm. and that they sort of stopped pushing. And that's why they drew the line in the sand just with the auto cycle starting to turn, the higher price they were paying. And they were probably getting some pretty good feedback from shareholders on that massive buyback that we talked about earlier. Um, Whereas this one, you have an outside date of March. Presumably, UTX will still want the asset. Um, even though it's not super creative for them, but everything that they've said has been that they wanted. They're not paying a higher price like Qualcomm was. Um, so it could potentially going to continue to get extended. So how long can China sit on this thing? Right. Hypothetically, um, let's say they did issue a formal block of the deal. Yeah. What kind of that would set off a crazy domino effect? Well, one, ARBs are in this deal. Two, Fox A, aside from the healthcare deals, it, it's the only real large deal with any kind of spread of consequence that's left out there. And everyone's involved in that one because everyone also likes the stub. What do you consider a, 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 where is Fox on a done deal? 49 50 No, we think that, I mean, you're getting the $38 out of the Disney portion, right. which is worth a little bit more with, because of the collar. So that gets you closer to an extra dollar. We think you're actually getting some tax kickback because the deal was signed before tax reform that we think is worth close to another dollar. 
And then we th- we like this stub. Um, it, we are hearing it's trading in the low 11s in the gray market. We could see it trading above 12. Um, so we are, we come up with a number above 50. And if Disney rallies, then the consideration is going to rally with it. So there's a pretty decent deal spread. And after Fox, after Sky went to Comcast, and the difference between Fox buying the Sky stake versus selling the Sky stake to Comcast at that huge price has a massive difference on what Fox is worth on no deal. So Fox on no deal is net cash positive. They could be like a Qualcomm where they just have this monster buyback. They're going to have buyers lined up for all the RSNs. So Fox becomes a much cleaner play in the back end. So we think Fox break price is 40. Really? Yeah. And we, th- we think that the deal consideration is above 50. So it's not trading at, it's not trading like it's a done deal to us. Right. And uh, I mean, do people think if let's say for some reason, Disney Fox was blocked, people are assuming then of course, then Comcast Fox would be blocked. So there's no feel that Comcast would then swoop in again. It just, well, m- maybe they do. They paid a lot for sky yeah. and it sort of seems like they probably wouldn't have paid that much for sky if they thought they were going to have another crack it sort of, Felt like they they could have had one or the other, so they just they went with Sky. So if, um, if call if COL got blocked and let's say Fox traded down forty two, yeah. you would think that would be a, a pretty great buy. No, I mean I I think that there's a scenario where, where uh, Collins gets blocked and then the China dynamic gets sort of solved or healed by the time that Fox is really going to come up. Well, that's what I'm saying. So you would want to buy Fox at 42 then. Yeah. If I mean, not downsides only 40. Yeah. It's, it's 40 fundamentally, but everyone is over their skis long this thing. So I wouldn't be buying it that first day for 42. Got it. I think it probably would just bleed out for a while from there. Got it. Um, any thoughts uh, quickly? Papa John's weird situation. Also, are people playing this or just too complicated? Yeah, totally weird situation. Again, this is almost like Campbell's where you have, I mean, this one's even, even tougher. You have a 30% owner, uh, founder of the company, who's just his mere presence is probably going to scare up some bidders. Um, he probably can't put together his own bid for the company because it's probably going to be hard for him to get uh, PE shops to align with him. Right. If you're an acquirer and you want to buy it without him, you risk the noise he's going to make, the, the litigation the threats he's going to make. A PE shop would then have to deal with him. Yeah. And I don't think they want to deal with him. And it's a high bar, right? Like he owns 30%. So you have to get a, a big portion of the rest of the votes. He's probably still has some allies on the board. He probably still has some allies as investors. So it's just, I mean, there's, there's so many hurdles to getting deals done these days that it's just hard to see someone wanting to add another hurdle into the process. Okay. You said you wanted five, five minutes at the end. What did yeah. you want to discuss today? Um, okay. So last time I was on, you asked me five questions. Yes. This is something you like to do with your guests. This is the second time I've been on. Okay. Thanks for having me again. So I figured why not turn the table and do the five questions back to you. Let's How do you do feel it. about that? Okay. All right. So I obviously work on the sell side. Okay. Um, we've chatted a little bit about sell side coverage of risk arb event situations. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you talked about it a little bit on your podcast last week. If you have one suggestion or recommendation for the sell side, specifically when it comes to event and special situations, what would it be? Quantifying the downside. Everyone only talks about the upside, but no one ever wants to quantify what things are worth on the downside. So, for example, I'm asking, and that's why I'm constantly asking you, where do you think Athena goes? Where does Campbell's go? You know, every note on Campbell's is what's it worth in a buyout, but no one talks about what's going to happen if he loses the vote. What's it worth on a standalone? That, to me, is where they always miss the mark. Yep. Makes sense. Um, That's actually one of the things we try to focus on as well is sort of where is this thing going? What's the sentiment going to be? Who's the buyer that are going to be coming out? Mm. Uh, How bad does the ARP community want to get out of this thing? Um, So, yeah, that's a good suggestion. Okay, number two, walk me through or just mention what's your best trade and the trade that gave you the most anxiety going into the event. And it could be the same. It doesn't have to be your biggest monetarily, but just, um, yeah, kind of broad question. But how do you think about those two? Best trade or which trade has given me the most anxiety in in recently? Yeah. So both. I want to know both. I mean, I was really big in IDTI and um, after the original article came out, there was a second article that came out only in the Japanese Nikkei. And I think we discussed this a little bit and it had quotes from um, the Renasa CEO, something along the lines of uh, the idea of paying this. Uh, how can I go back to my shareholders with this high price? There was things that um, were getting lost in translation that I was, and I was asking you, I was like, who is translating this article? And I was really starting to get freaked out about that. And then the deal happened, I believe, on a Wednesday. And Monday and Tuesday, or Friday and Monday, um, it was just getting hammered. And so I was just having flashbacks to uh, my biggest loss ever was in Exalta. Okay, when Nippon was going to buy Exalta. Yep. And I thought that that to me was like the dream situation, right? Because you had, they were negotiating with Axo Nobel. Nippon, they, they, they ended the negotiations because Nippon Pink came in. And I was like, this is a dream situation. Right. They're going to get bought. It's going to be 40 bucks plus. All yeah. the analysts were agreed. And then middle of the day, I'll never forget, 1230, halted, deal off the table, stock goes to 29. It was 37. So I'm having flashbacks to that deal all over again when that stock is getting hammered. And then luckily, I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday, they closed it. But that article did freak me out a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, Okay, Uh, have you ever let your moral position or political views influence whether to get involved in a situation, how you're going to play a situation, um, you know, to buy or sell the situation, or do you try to always sort of separate those? What would be an example of when uh, something moral would, would stop someone? Like like buying a cigarette company or something like that? Yeah, so it could be uh, the buyer is a, ter- a very bad actor and they're going to maybe uh, cut a bunch of jobs or you know that they're going to sort of... Uh, Sinclair buying uh, Tribune mm. was one that, that there was a, a portion of the investor base that just didn't want that transaction to happen. I will say this. I, I don't think my morals come into play uh, in in the way where I'm like, I don't want to own a cigarette company or I don't want to own a liquor company or cannabis now. That never really crosses my mind. 
but there are certain people that I don't want to invest with. So I'll give you an example. Another huge loss I had was in um, what was formerly known as Trunk, T-R-N-C, mm-hmm. and that guy Michael Farrow, and that Patrick Soon, and I mean, Michael Farrow um, kind of just jerked shareholders around. And I would never invest. If he started a public company tomorrow, I would never invest with him. And uh, I, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of other CEOs that I just view in like a shady light. Yeah. Um, but I mean, now we've learned, for example, that um, I forget the the CEO of AbbVie. You know, he's backed out of or tried to back out of two deals now. Right. The next deal he buys, this trade, it should always his deal should always trade wide because he's already tried to back out of two deals. Um, Fresenius, I mean, who knows? They just made a bad decision, but Abby, um, Michael Farrow, those are two guys I, I wouldn't invest with again. All right. Sounds good. Uh, you asked me a movie question. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a movie question. So what Wall Street, either former movie or uh, former Wall Street situation or individual, would you be most excited if you heard that a new movie was coming out uh, with that, you know, in that area? And who would you like to be cast in one of the roles? Okay. First of all, I have been saying to, you know, I've been trying to get journalists or other people to cover a story on Jeff Immelt. Okay. Because mm-hmm. there has to be a story on what happened to General Electric. This was a guy who had, uh, he thought so highly of himself that not only did he have a GE plane, of course, but he had a decoy plane. So wherever he would fly, the decoy plane would fly alongside him. So I guess it was almost like when you see um, the president and he shows up in, in 10, uh, a caravan of Escalades, you know, and you don't know which one is the president's in. Yeah. He felt the need to do that with a plane. And so he, uh, you know, he, GE always seemed to beat by a penny every quarter until he left. And then this new guy takes over, and it's a disaster. In, in a 10-year bull market where every other comp, Honeywell, all these other companies are doing amazing. So why he seems so Teflon and he's able to avoid scrutiny is crazy to me. And so there should be a movie about General Electric, Immelt. Richard Gere would be a good Immelt. <laughs> and that's, that's the one I would like to see. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think mine is uh, something with Michael Milken. Like mm. Den of Thieves, Predator's Ball, maybe you have Matt Damon involved. Now, would you do the whole arc where he goes to prison, comes out, and now he's uh, you know a, a nice philanthropist now? You could have it end like Wolf of Wall Street, how it kind of <laughs> ends with like one scene or something. Maybe we get The Rock in there just to sell the script. <laughs> <laughs> I like that um, idea. All right, let's end with a fun one. Okay. So you live in the same neighborhood as a place called Chumley's, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually think is an underrated New York spot and mostly for their hamburger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big hamburger guy. What do you think is the best hamburger in New York City? Well, to be fair, I haven't eaten meat in about a year and a half. Okay. But but when I did, the best hamburger in New York City, uh, I mean, I, I did have that Chumley's Burger once. It's amazing. Corner Bistro, amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the burger at Peter Luger's that they serve at lunch is incredible. So I might say the Peter Luger's burger. Oh, I haven't had that one. Yeah, really good. Well, I appreciate the five questions, man. Yeah. Thanks again for coming. Yeah, thanks See, for having until me. Until next time.
My thanks again to Jason Verano from the Nomura Securities event team. You know, I complain about the low quality of some sell-side research out there in the ARP space, but I truly think that these guys do some of the best work out there. I'll wrap up things for today. Remember, this is a weekly podcast, but I often tweet out ideas in real time. You can follow me at my handle, at Accord to Sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources. And if you have any email questions, feel free. It's michael at according to sources podcast.com. And as always, if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. It'll help me to continue to get great guests. Once again, I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broomstreet Capital. And this has been According to Sources for the week of October 22nd, 2018. I will see you next week.